Hey, you're listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and this is episode 56. And today we're going to be talking about how to understand and engage with the secular age. Let's do this. Hey everyone, thank you guys so much for joining us today in this conversation. We are so looking forward to this time together and especially understanding our society, our culture, our ways of thinking. And we are excited just about our special guest too. Before we introduce him, we got a shout out to Xenia. Uh, Xenia, who's been on the podcast before, is joining us. Xenia, what's going on? How's it going? Yes, thanks so much for joining us today. You're going to be one of our guest hosts, along with Bernard and Shu, who are here as always. Bernard, Shu, what's going on? Yo, yo. About the same. I'm <laughs> About still the same. in the same place. <laughs> <laughs> still at home, in lockdown, kind of, as we move into kind of somewhat reopening. So hopefully we'll, you know, we'll see where things go. We'll see where things go. Anyways, today's special guest is an author, professor at Luther Seminary. He teaches, he writes on youth young adult family ministry with a specific focus on culture and the church. Recently, he's been writing a series of books on the secular age, very much an extrapolation and influenced by the works of Charles Taylor. These books are magnificent. They are a blend of history, philosophy, sociology, and how it relates to us in our faith, especially faith formation and as pastors. And, you know, he's got a third one coming along called The Congregation in the Secular Age, coming out early next year. Now, he resides in St. Paul, Minnesota. St. Paul, how does that not set someone up for apostleship? I'm excited about this. <laughs> we are so honored to have Andrew Root with us. Andrew, how are you doing? I'm doing all right, man. It's, uh, yeah, we're, I'm doing well. It's uh, the end of the week when, I don't know when people will be listening to this, but right now it's the end of the week, so I'm a little tired, but you guys are filled with energy, so I'm ready to roll. <laughs> you know, John's filled with energy. <laughs> we are feeding off that you are here with us. You know, it's just exciting. We're just excited for this conversation, especially from a lot of the, the things that we have read from what you've written about. So yeah, we're really jumping into this conversation with, uh, you know, just looking forward to a good time. Yeah. So very kind of quick question. You know, you are at Luther, you know, you're a Luther seminary. And is that a Lutheran seminary? Yeah, shockingly with the name, it is. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Unbelievable. <laughs> Unbelievable, isn't it? It is a Lutheran seminary. So it is the uh, largest seminary of the um, ELCA, the Evangelical Lutheran Church in America, which ironically and weirdly is not an evangelical denomination. You know, so it's a mainline denomination and evangelical refers back to old kind of European Protestantism and the Reformation. But uh, yeah, it's biggest uh, Lutheran denomination in the in the U.S. And so this is the, is the biggest seminary up here in the upper Midwest in uh, St. Paul, as you said. Yep. Very cool. Very cool. And, you know, just to kind of, you know, to expand and unpack that just a tiny bit, but, you know, what would you say are kind of some of the major differences between, you know, Lutheran and evangelical? Because you mentioned it right there and what you were kind of describing the school as. Yeah, I mean that's that's a really good question. I mean, I would I think what I would say here is like historically there's there's a link. I mean, it goes back to the evangelical tradition of pro early Protestantism, 
the, the kind of Lutheranism that I live in, the, the justification by faith alone is a, a really huge thing. And, and I think there's something very similar within that. And the importance of scripture is, is central. It's just, I think, that historically how the denomination has, has played itself out. So probably the biggest difference in kind of classic Lutheran perspectives is justification by faith is so strong that something like an altar call or the real emphasis that you have to make a decision, that the theological element is turned the other way, and that's that God has made a decision for you, and that your own decision maybe comes into it and is important, but really the emphasis is on God's decision for you. So that's probably, at least within the American context, maybe the difference has often been like kind of classic American evangelicalism. There's some kind of moment of an altar call or some kind of moment of decision that you have to make. And that still is within, I think, any Protestant imagination. But this has been more of an emphasis that God is the one who acts and that you um, respond to that act. But really, it's about um, God's action. So I think that's probably the main difference. I see a lot of hints of that in, you know, in, in the books that you write, too. So very cool. So I have to just say one thing. So I just finished The Pastor in a Secular Age the book you had had written just this past week. And I got to say, in the second half of your book, you have some of the best illustrations. <laughs> and, you know, for me, for from someone who also loves movies and pop culture, you mentioned Men in Black, Game of Thrones, Harry Potter, even Event Horizon, which is amazing. And you use one of the best sci-fi movies of recent years, Arrival, as a prominent example in one of your chapters to talk about God's relationship to time and what does it mean for how he enters in. That is just so awesome. So, you know, you know, for us and for our listeners, what is something that you would absolutely recommend to watch oh. that would challenge us, you know, in our time, in, you know, kind of our space? Gosh, that's such a good question and such a hard one. What I, you know what, actually what I would probably say is, is just a good go-to here, especially, you know, early on in the pandemic, the new season released, but his Ozark is just totally worth watching, I mm. think, um, on Netflix. Because it really is, a, I think it's a really fascinating kind of morality tale, you know, like, especially, I, I've always kind of dreamt of, of having a class that um, we would both talk about Breaking Bad and Ozark and think of them as like kind of medieval um, morality tales, you know, like there used to be these stories in medieval Christendom of like the way you're supposed to live. And, and in some sense, these are like, you know, to kind of take us into the secular age, these are, these are kind of like late modern morality tales, you mm. know, and, and Breaking Bad is definitely like a Nietzschean kind of morality tale where you have someone who's getting beat down by life. And then it's like, I'm going to take my destiny back. And it's like the whole apex up to that, that one scene <laughs> where he's in his, in his, wherever he is with his wife, where he's like, I'm the one who knocks on the door. Like I'm, I'm the Uber mensch. I'm the powerful <laughs> one. And like, so there's that morality tale. But then the interesting thing about Ozark is it's a completely different kind of conundrum of a late modern morality tale, which here you have Jason Batenham's character, uh, Marty, who's just trying to be a good dad and make some bad decisions and gets involved in kind of laundering money but he's doing it all for the good of his family. And mm -hmm. it's all about keeping his kids safe. Like the whole season one, two, and three are, they're just really trying to keep their kids safe, which, you know, like you hear that if you're running around the suburbs or, you know, a lot of our congregations, like, I, well, of course, during a pandemic, what are parents saying all the time? Or what yeah. are we saying about our own kids? Is, at least in my country, as we're debating, should we send kids back to school? It's like, it's got to be safe. We want to just keep our kids safe. Safety becomes like the highest good. 
And in Ozark, like the highest good is keeping your kids safe. And that means like laundering money, killing people. And there's this kind of acceleration to their lives where it just becomes busier and busier. And in a very kind of uh, suburban way, the minivan that, uh, that they drive around and just, you know, keeps loading up on the miles to keep kids safe and give kids a future. But in this case, it's like the to save them from a drug cartel. So that is way more than you wanted when you asked the question. No, no, it's exactly what we wanted. And you know what? (laughs) You know, it's on Netflix and, you know, not that Netflix supports our podcast, but, you know. But they should. Maybe they they should. should. (laughs) But you know what? Where do we sign up for this class? I'm just saying, you know, you talk about Ozark, you talk about Breaking Bad. There's so many things out there that are, would be kind of modern tales that we can really examine like kind of those ideologies and where they come from in the past and i think that says a lot about who we are (laughs) as people today so we were talking a little bit about your writing and you just mentioned it earlier about just you know kind of examining and understanding the secular age and you know reading some of your recent books you've kind of extrapolated off the work of charles taylor so if you could share with us just a little bit how did you get interested in charles taylor's work and why was it for you something that you started kind of making all these connections with? Yeah, it's a great question. Charles Taylor, of course, good Canadian, good uh, Quebecois, a McGill professor. Um, now, you know, he's he's the the young age of, uh, I think he's what, 87 or 88 yeah, now or late something 80s, like that. Yeah. So, yeah. So he's, uh, yeah, to me, he's a Canadian treasure. He's a, he's a North American treasure for sure. But uh, he wrote this book in, you know, 2007. So it's been a while. And you know, you write an epic book when it takes people like over a decade to kind of like start really dialoguing with it. But he wrote this book called The Secular Age, which was an award-winning book in, in many ways. And uh, it was it's a fascinating book. But I have to say, I read it, I think, the first time in maybe 2008, early 2009. And I had to review it for some journal. And I just, I made my way through it. I mean, when I said I was going to review this book, and then they they sent it to me and it was dropped on my desk and it was 850 pages. You're like, oh yeah, why did I say I was going to do this? So I made my way through it. I, I got to say, I understood or could follow, you know, maybe 30% of it, but enough to write a book review and then kind of forgot about it. And then a, a, just a, a few years later, I had a, a grant and we were really analyzing, it was from the Templeton Foundation who had also given Taylor, this award called the Templeton Prize. And um, this grant was supposed to be looking at kind of young people and their view of science and, and how kind of the move of a secular age was in, in affecting them, particularly when it came to science. And I came back to Taylor's work and all of a sudden, all these light bulbs just started going off and it just started to make so much sense. And mm. Really, since the beginning of my career, my big question has been, or what, what's kind of been driving me is really helping people in ministry pastors and youth pastors and children's ministers and others help them really think about ministry through a vision of God's action, like how God acts in the world. Like to not just presume that our job is just kind of fortify religion or our job is just get kids, more kids to come to programming or our job as a pastor is to kind of build the church into the next big shiny church, the denomination, but really questions about who God is and how God acts Mm -hmm. um, should, should really be essential to us. And what became really important for me about Taylor is that Taylor, I think, in those 700-some pages in a secular age, tells us why it's just so hard, like why ministry feels hard. And um, I think feel is the right kind of way. Like He wants to tell us what it's like to actually live in 
a secular age, not just intellectually what's that like, but what what does it actually feel like to embody this? And and so he he's really become, at least in the last five or six years, my kind of interpretive muse. Like he his interpretation has given so much depth to a problem maybe I felt or I felt like I was addressing, but it has really given it a rich articulation. So like just why in ministry it's so hard to even continue to focus on God as a central component. Yeah, I think absolutely. Taylor gives us language for for why that's the case. And sometimes why the minister or the pastor is more, we could say, disenchanted or has a harder time even pointing to a living God or a speaking God. And it kind of goes back to what we were saying about, you know, Protestantism earlier. Like early Protestantism really believes that it knows how God acts and God acts by speaking. God speaks. The word of God mm. comes to us. Therefore, Amen. preaching is important. You know, so word and preaching and speaking are important in this tradition. But what happens when you inherit a world in a culture where people don't think people actually think that's nuts that God could act? Or, you know, maybe religion and spirituality and your own spirituality is good, but the, the idea that God could, a personal God could encounter you and speak to you, that seems to them unbelievable. And I think Taylor gives us a real vision on, on why, why people feel that way or how we, got, how we got to a society that assumes such things. Yes. You know what? There's been so many books written about ministry in the past and, you know, your desire for wanting to write and speak about and, you know, teach classes in understanding kind of why ministry is so hard from this angle, I think is something that is very refreshing because it's it's not often as considered. You know, someone will be like, oh yeah, we just need to kind of have a better model of engagement or we should have kind of more flashier programs or or whatnot to, you know, to address these issues. But I think one of the things that's been really great about reading your work has been kind of going back to understand, oh no, this is what is in people's understanding and psyche and and in the culture. And that's kind of why, you know, ministry is as hard as it is, but also why it is also as important. <laughs> that's why it is at the same time. I also I also found like reading your material, Andrew, it was like when I first came across your material, I was in a place, maybe I'm still in the place, but kind of flustered with with kind of like there's a lot of people writing books about you know the application what you should do what the effects of postmodernism the effects of, of secular things but they, they they weren't able to give uh for me a rich enough way to kind of understand what was going on um whether it was historically whether it is looking at um kind of so sociologically what's going on as well in people you know and and philosophically too, which you, you bring in as well. So that's what I always found fascinating that even as a pastor, I was like, there's something up here. And for me, for example, I work in a, a Chinese church, Chinese immigrant church in Canada in particular, and seeing how first generation people understand their faith and how it's transmitted and how they kind of want to, oh, I want my kids and I want my next gen to really understand my faith like I do. Yet that second, third gen, you know, now Gen Z, whatever, you know, categorization we have now, it's like, it, it's so different. It, 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 but then I also hear some people, and I, recently one person told me, there is no culture. It's just, it's just Christ culture, just God's culture. <laughs> and I was like, that, what? You know, but you can definitely see there's something going on here. And there's a difference in how it's all kind of playing out and how people interpret it. So I, I couldn't really read Charles Taylor material. I had to read like, uh, 
uh, James K. Smith's, uh, you know, yeah. summary of it. That was, that was way easier. But, you know, <laughs> your work definitely, I think, helped even, you know, make uh, Taylor's work make even more sense to, I think, what was going on. Yeah. Well, yeah, it's true. I mean, uh, Jamie Smith's book is a treasure, you know, because it takes what's 770 pages into like, you know, I think it's 150 pages. And um, so it definitely is a treasure. And the other thing that's so depressing about um, Taylor's work, which, you know, I mean, it's not depressing. Once you get into it, it's, it's, it's really life-giving, but it does take like three times reading through a secular age before you kind of feel like you fully have it. And that's partly, I mean, it's, it's interesting because this is the kind of piece about ministry because Taylor refuses to tell what he says, like um, he refuses to give us home runs, like this happened and that meant we get this world, you know, like one thing, one or two things occur and then we get this, like this happens in America all the time where, you know, especially in conservative Protestantism, like you take prayer out of schools, this is what you get. Or even in some like liturgical mainline traditions, like you take out these liturgical words of confession and now you have this secular world and taylor just doesn't believe it works that way you know he thinks that there's all these kind of zigzags but that's what makes the work 700 pages and so hard is you get a little bit here and he says well it could have gone either way but then it went this way and then it went that way and then it went this way and all of a sudden you're you know 400 pages in and your head's spinning a little bit and so it, it does take like three three times reading the 700 pages before you're like, Oh, I'm following the trail here and I'm not mm-hmm. going to fall off the cliff. So um, Jamie's book is really a help because it, it gives you a little bit of a, a, a overview map and you don't fall off some of the, some of the cliffs he's on. But yeah, but that becomes part of the issue with ministry too, is that Taylor wants us to know that this is a world we face, but it's also a world that lives inside of us, mm-hmm. you know, like um, so that becomes part of the struggle is that, and at least in the view that Taylor has of what it means to live in a secular age is that if you're a pastor, you're just as secularized as your people. And there are certain mm. times where you're more so even. And it, so it becomes really important to become clear about those things, because if we're not, th- this is just for him, this is just a kind of imagination. And if we don't become aware of the imagination, we fall into all sorts of, of ruts. Oh, man, there's a lot to chew on just from what you just said right there. <laughs> But I do want to kind of go back just a little bit. And because I, I think your works kind of give us a kind of a paradigm and some language to kind of understanding the secular age, I also don't want to assume that, you know, when we say the word secular, that everyone understands it the same way or, you know, that they have the same view on it. So I was just wondering if you could kind of break down a little bit about what does the secular age mean I've, we've heard you talk or in write about you know secular zero one two three what is that all about and you know why is it important to kind of just to, to make sure that we nuance what does it mean to be secular yeah no that's really important because it, it really is true and again this is why taylor's book 700 pages and probably my own writing on taylor is too long too is that he just doesn't believe there's one way and it, actually you know if you get a group of you know, there's five of us here, you get a group of five people and you all say like, there's an issue in the church and it's that, you know, the secular is impacting us. Everyone will probably nod their head and be like, yeah, for sure. But if you actually took the time and tried to parse out what each person thinks the secular is, there, there would be some overlap for sure, but there'd be a, there'd be big, big divergence on what people Mm. actually think it means. So Taylor just gives us these three kind of ways of thinking about it. First of all, let's imagine Let's remember that the secular is a culturally imposed reality, that there are other 
even today, there are other societies within the world that do not function sec- in a secular frame, They're, that are less secular, that this is a particular kind of Western secularization that we need to be aware of. So that's both really him locating himself as well as there, you know, like the parameters of his work. So there's a lot of work that can be done. I mean, even the, the experience of, of folks, 1.5 gen and, and things like that. I mean, that, there's huge ramifications here about how that works. And Taylor's really trying to say, okay, so what would it be like to be a kind of person who comes to what he would call one of the societies of leftover Christendom, of, of Latin Western Christendom? So he's really talking about like Europe in North America and mm. how it became this way. And he, he wants to remind us that there was a time where these were not secular, secular societies, that there was no such thing as the secular, and per, particularly in medieval Christendom, that you really just couldn't be French and not be going to mass, you know, like it was very hard. The example I always use in presentations is the, the Italian thinker, Paolo Sarpi, who this is like early, early 16th century. And if you go to Venice now, well, you can't because you're in quarantine, but if you could go to Venice, you could find his statue. There's a statue up in Venice and it's in Italian and it says, you know, Paolo Sarpi when he was born, when he died. But then the quote underneath it, you'd probably have to find some, well, you'd have to find someone who could translate it for you from Italian. But it says, Paolo Sarpi, the only unbeliever of his generation, which is a pretty remarkable thing, you know, like in my joke, always in churches or conferences is like, you know, go to Toronto now. And if they put a statue up for every unbeliever, you couldn't even drive down the street. They'd just be everywhere. <laughs> so you, ha- you have to like, remember that there was a time where not believing was just not possible. And it's not just like, consenting like i believe this but even the practice of this you know and like the only other example i can give of this is the handmaid's tale um if you watch that on hulu which is another pop culture example <laughs> which it which really is you know we, we should give a shout out to the handmaid's tale here because a good canadian author um, novelist uh, margaret atwood wrote the books they're freaky it really is a thought experiment of what would happen after late modernity, if there was a return to a secular zero world. And mm-hmm. so America has fallen and America in some sense no longer exists anymore. And Gilead has taken over a very fundamentalist religious group. Well, actually that's not true. America exists, but it exists as a small enclave inside of Toronto, which to me just seems like the ultimate Canadian fantasy. You yes. know what I mean? Like America <laughs> doesn't exist and it exists inside of Toronto. And the, and the only hope for America is Canada. It just seems like the ultimate Canadian fantasy to me. But anyhow, fascinating show. But if you watch it, the, the freakiest thing is the way they talk and they, the, they dress. So you dress your order, essentially, like if you're a handmaid or if you're a Martha, as they call it, like a kind of a housewife person, or if you're, if you're someone of an elite class, you dress a certain way. But the way you talk too, like may the Lord open and under his eye. And that really does harken back to kind of medieval Christendom where the liturgy wasn't just lived out in the cathedral. The liturgy was lived out everywhere within the culture. So the whole society just formed faith. But then we enter into the secular and the true secular means that we start to have a divide between the public and private institutions and religion Mm -hmm. itself gets filed in the private realm. So whoever's running the government, whoever's running the larger institutions, it's not necessary for them to believe anymore. Like you couldn't imagine that in a secular zero world. If they didn't believe, the devil would come and take us, you know, if our, if our leaders didn't believe. But now we kind of think the person running, like what we call in the States, the, the DMV, the, the, the place that gives you your license. Like if they don't believe in God, we're, we're not really worried about that. Or, you know, even principals in our kids' schools, we probably are like, well, you know, 
as long as they're a good person, that's okay. So there becomes this divide between the public and private. But what, the two that become most relevant for us is that we enter into a secular two perspective. And secular two, and once these arrive, Taylor will say, once they arrive, they're with us forevermore. So once a society has a secular one, they're here. It's here. But then it can develop and change, and they can mm-hmm. enter into a secular two frame, which a secular two frame is that fewer and fewer people are going to church. So people are, are fewer and fewer people are going to church. And I think almost every, that's overstated, but nearly every Protestant pastor in America thinks that the issue when they say secular is a secular two issue, that fewer and fewer people are going to church. And how can we get more people to come? How can we make our you know, worship services more engaging? How can we make the church more relevant to people's lives? It becomes a secular two issue. And mm-hmm. if you work in a denomination, you know, there are legitimate secular two issues. Like, you know, in my country, our denomination shrink. We have, we, you know, healthcare becomes an issue. How do we buy into healthcare? We, need, we don't have a big enough block to buy in. Or you teach in a seminary, you're very aware of the denomination shrinks. Student, you know, the pool of students who can come to the seminary shrinks, and all of a sudden they don't need all the faculty members they have. You know, like <laughs> these things become existential. If you're a religious professional and work in a church or a denomination, this is really significant. But I think the contribution of Taylor's work is to say, okay, yeah, those are things we have to deal with, but that's not the real issue. And the real issue is what he calls secular three. And secular three is defined as the contesting of all belief. Or in other ways, in in very kind of Taylor-like way, he'll make up a word and he'll say what it's like to really be in a secular age, what it's like to live in a society like Canada is to have all of your beliefs fragilized, that they become fragile. So if you're a believer and you really believe, you find at times your faith fragilized. Like, do I really believe this? Or is this just the family I grew up in? If I would have grown up somewhere else in the world, would I really believe this? Or is this true? Or is this just like an evolutionary trick? Like you can't help but be fragilized that way. But what's fascinating about Taylor and what makes him remarkable to read, even a 700 book three times, is it works the other way as well. So if you're someone who doesn't believe, you know, like you, you live in Toronto and you, you know, live close to downtown and, you know, you live close to the university, you know, you're, you, you've got an advanced university degree. Listen, you've all, you know what religion is, you know what faith is. It's just a historical reality that people in power have used to, to lead to consent or something. That's all you believe. He says at certain times, though, in this kind of secular age, you'll find your unbelief fragilized and you'll find yourself believing at a time. Like you go to a Christmas concert and you hear that Bach song and you find yourself crying or you go to your mother's funeral and you have an experience that makes it feel like she's giving you, that she's reminding you of the meaning of life at it. And, and you, you, find your, you find your unbelief fragilized. So that's the kind of secular age he really wants to focus on is a secular age where belief itself becomes fragilized, Um, whether you are someone who believes by not believing or someone who believes by believing, you find yourself fragilized. And that's the, and to me, that is, that is the heart of where we do ministry. And I think what's hard for the pastor is that you keep getting pulled towards secular two issues. We need to get more people in the church, but really the bigger issue is how do you confess that there is a personal God at the center of the universe bringing forth judgment and grace, and that's believable to people in some way. And how do you embody and believe that when you yourself find yourself fragilized more times than you probably even want to admit? 
those become the real struggle, I think, of, of ministry. Yes, that is so helpful to kind of nuance and kind of parse that out. That is giving us, you know, a way for us to kind of understand what are the specific things that we are actually facing and experiencing both personally and in, in our churches. So thank you so much for that. That was really good. I know the response for, for a lot of our churches. Let, let's double down and fortify. <laughs> right? That's what we're going to do. But the thing is, if, if it's like always trying to, you know, address secular two issues, when society has moved into secular three, those things are not going to resonate. In fact, it's going to be seen as more and more kind of disconnected or <laughs> removed. And I think why it's, it's important to kind of understand those, you know, those different stages and different levels is, is to know the people that we are reaching with and also know ourselves that we are influenced by this as well. Absolutely. I, I think with, with our conversation, like even why we, you know, we have this podcast is, you know, it's a good reminder too, because I think the reason why we even started this podcast was there's that missing missional element to, to what we're, so if you don't have that missional impetus, then it's easy just to, let's just keep, you know, our, our borders. Let's just keep the, the, the tradition that we've had for so long and just keep trying to make sure our kids or our next gen stay within this versus actually engaging what is happening in the world. And yeah, even though it is a fragilization of what's going on, how do we do that? How do we disciple people in the midst of that? It's, yeah, just, yeah, reminded me of that. That's it for our episode today. Thank you guys so much for joining us on this conversation. It has been fascinating, especially in regards to what does it mean as we engage culture, as we are in God's mission? How do we understand secularism and what does it mean for us as pastors and in ministry? We'd love to hear your thoughts. You can connect with us through Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, or by email. And give us some of your thoughts about how you are wrestling with what does it mean to engage a secular age. If you haven't done so already, please remember to rate and review our podcast. That really helps us to get this conversation out there and continue to invite more people into it. So please remember to do that. You know, it is our hope that we continue to engage the Canadian-Asian conversation. So please remember to do that so that we can continue to have this conversation reach more people. Once again, you have been listening to the Canadian Asian Missional Podcast, and we hope you'll join us on this journey. See you next time.